How is God going to have a loving relationship with the rebellious people who broke his law? Well, someone has to pay the price. Um, someone has to, to bear the burden of that, of that penalty for the broken law. The fact that God allowed his son to bear that burden and to bear that penalty is not a sign that God is, in some sense, immoral, but rather it's a sign of how incredibly gracious, compassionate, uh, and uh, loving God is that he would be willing to, to give up his own son for sinful, rebellious people. So when you look at it from that perspective, it's actually the opposite story. And this is what Christians have embraced for generations. Hey, All Things listeners, whether you're listening on your favorite podcast app or on YouTube, please be sure to like and subscribe and maybe even leave a comment or review. Thanks so much. Welcome to All Things, everybody. It is so good to have you. This is the Thursday before Easter Sunday, and so this episode is going to focus on that. I am so grateful to have with me Dr. Michael Kruger. Dr. Kruger is the president of Reformed Theological Seminary at the Charlotte campus, and he's also professor of New Testament and early Christianity. And I actually had the privilege of taking his gospels class this past semester, so I'm personally acquainted with him as a professor and really, really grateful. Um, Dr. Kruger is also one of the leading scholars today in the study of the origins of the New Testament, particularly the development of the New Testament canon. He's also the author of 13 books and maybe most notably, uh, husband to my friend and well-known author and speaker, Melissa Kruger, also father to three. So Dr. Kruger, welcome. And what did I miss? Well, thanks, Jen. Uh, You got it right. And certainly you got it right by saying that maybe most known for being Melissa's husband. Um, and uh, in fact, most of the time I go speak, people quickly ask, is your wife here? So she, they really <laughs> want to just hear from her. So that's great. <laughs> well, we are grateful for both of you, truly, for the way that you both serve the kingdom. And thanks for being with us today on this Thursday before Easter Sunday. Absolutely. It's a great conversation, a great time of year. Yes. So I wanted to have you on to talk about Easter. Now, I personally did not grow up in a Christian home. And so for me, apologetics and understanding the historical reliability of Jesus Christ himself, as well as our scriptures was so pivotal and important to me. Um, And I just want to share that with the listeners. So let's dive in with Easter being this weekend. My first question for you is, did Jesus really live? Is he historical? Yeah, well, you know, what I love about Easter is it reminds us of history. It reminds us of Christian history. And even for non-Christians, they have to think through, well, does Easter mean anything more to me than just Easter eggs and Easter bunnies and things like this? And, um, you know, the, your first question is the right one, is that when we talk about Easter, we're talking about a real human being that actually lived. What's interesting to note, among scholars today, actually, there's not much doubt about that. In years gone by, there were sort of, you know, uh, skeptics that doubted even the historicity of Jesus. But we have so much corroboratory evidence of Jesus's life and existence from both Christian sources and non-Christian sources that now everyone pretty much agrees that Jesus of Nazareth was a real individual. And even the broad contours of his life are generally agreed upon uh, by by, uh, scholars, both Christian and secular alike. So yeah, we're dealing with a real human being, and as we'll, I'm sure, talk about in just a moment, a real human being that at least Christians for generations have claimed to, had, had risen from the dead. Wow. Okay, so th- I, I think that's fascinating that there is just agreement across the spectrum of scholars that Jesus was a real human being. Where do you see some of the disagreements come? Is it is it in the fact that, um, you know, his death, is there disagreement over his death on the cross? Is there disagreement over 
his resurrection, Easter Sunday? Where do you start to see sort of varying perspectives? Yeah, so obviously scholars of the Gospels come from a lot of different perspectives, theologically and practically. Um, There is a general agreement that he was a real historical figure that lived. They think that we have reason to think that he was from Galilee, um, that uh, he uh, was probably baptized by John the Baptist, um, that he taught many things and was said to have done miracles, whether scholars think they're real miracles or not, of course, is a separate question. Um, and then and then most agree that he was crucified by the Romans. Um, and so there, there actually is a remarkable amount of agreement on the broad contours and the Gospels, of course, themselves, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John follow that contour um, broadly. And then, of course, the Gospels make additional claims beyond that. And so there's a lot of common ground there with secular scholars. In fact, when there's people who deny the existence of Jesus, it's interesting that some of the secular scholars rally to his defense. It's a bizarre thing to watch, actually. So you have a famous book by a scholar by the name of Richard Carrier, who's denied one of the very few people who denied that Jesus lived at all. And then you have a scholar like Bart Ehrman, who's typically very skeptical of the Gospels, actually arguing against Carrier and defending the, the historicity of Jesus. And when you watch that play out, you're thinking, wow, this is bizarre. I'm watching Bart Ehrman defend the existence of Jesus. Now, of course, he doesn't defend the the resurrection of Jesus, but he does defend his existence. So that's not really in doubt. Uh, I think, um, you know, what what the the differences are going to be over is how accurate are the Gospels? Mm -hmm. And then, of course, there's going to be differences about the miraculous claims in the Gospels. Yeah, well, let's go there. Let's go to the miraculous claims, because obviously the biggest one is the resurrection of Jesus, which we are going to gather and celebrate here in just a couple days. Why do you think that it is historically reliable that Jesus did, in fact, rise from the dead? What say, you know, we're chatting on an airplane and I find out you're a scholar and I say, you know, I mean, obviously nobody believes Jesus actually rose from the dead. Where do you start with me as a skeptic? Yeah, well, actually, I don't start with historical evidence. I'll get there in just a moment. But I think the first thing to recognize is that whether someone finds the historical evidence compelling or not compelling, because there is historical evidence, depends on the earlier and more foundational worldview they already have when they show up to the conversation. In other words, when someone is proposed with the idea, Jesus of Nazareth died and three days later rose from the dead, they already have an inkling of whether they're willing to believe that. Not based on any historical evidence. They may not even know about any historical evidence, but they already know in their mind whether they find that to be a plausible claim based on their worldview. Um, now, if someone you're sitting next to on the plane is an atheist and doesn't think God exists, well, then he's got no, ba- he doesn't, doesn't matter how much historical evidence there is. He's never going to believe. Um, that Jesus of Nazareth rose from the dead, because he doesn't think there's any divine activity in the world. He doesn't think there's anything like what we call the supernatural. If you're talking to the plane on the plane with someone who's a deist and thinks, yes, God exists, but he doesn't interact with the world or really do anything in the world or care about the world, well, then he too is going to find it very implausible, no matter what the historical evidence is. And the reason I mention that is because when we get to the historical evidence, and I think there's a lot of it, you, you have to realize people's willingness to accept or reject that evidence is really predicated on their earlier worldview. And so unless you address that worldview at some point, you realize that you could spend the whole day telling everybody about the evidence and they would just shrug their shoulders and say, no, I'm convinced it's impossible for someone to rise from the dead. And if it's impossible for someone to rise from the dead, it doesn't matter how much historical evidence you have. And so I think it's worth pointing out as we get started that most people's objections are philosophical, not historical. Um, and they're actually yeah. philosophical based on things they've not even really necessarily defended or even understand why they have those views. It is have an inkling that, that supernatural things don't take place. So that's where I would begin. Now, once you get there and you have that conversation, eventually you have to get the historical evidence. Well, what kind of historical evidence is there? Well, I think there's a lot of it. Let me just mention one thing at this juncture that I think people overlook. The real issue isn't whether someone 
has to explain whether Jesus rose or didn't rise from the dead. I think the bigger issue and the issue people don't, don't really think about is they have to explain how Christians came to believe that mm. Jesus rose from the dead. And that, and most people don't realize this, is an undisputed historical fact. Here's an, yeah. undi- and I, I don't say this lightly, here's an undisputed historical fact. At the earliest strata we can find of early Christian teaching, it was believed that Jesus was crucified by the Romans, that he was dead for three days, and that he was alive again three days after that. Christians embraced that very, very early, and they embraced it in wide numbers. And what the skeptic has to explain is how did Christians come to that belief um, if it wasn't actually something that happened? And this is where I think the Christian worldview makes a lot of sense. We have the best explanation, I think, of the historical data. Wow. Okay, so... There's a lot to unpack there, but I appreciate what you've said about the philosophical foundation for this conversation. Um, I think you're right, especially in 2023 in the wealthy West, we tend to come to things from an atheist perspective or a deist perspective. You're going to run into that a lot, especially here in Colorado or in my experience in Europe. So establishing some sort of philosophical framework before diving into this conversation does seem to be really key. Um, And then what you have said about in terms of the uh, earliest Christians believing that Jesus lived, died, and rose again, that is tremendously helpful. I mean, looking at how did thousands of people, how did this movement, why do we 2,000 years later maintain uh, worship over a man who rose again? So what are some of the things that you would point to? What are some of these bullet points? Why did the Christians believe that? How do we explain the birth of um you know, the Jesus revolution or the, the Christianity in and of itself. How do we explain the birth? Yeah. So, I mean, one of our earliest texts for this, of course, most people know is 1 Corinthians 15. It's mm-hmm. actually earlier than the gospel texts themselves. Um, if you look at the resurrection accounts and the canonical gospels, they're going to be dated somewhere between 60 and 90 AD, depending on the gospel. Okay, fair enough. But in 1 Corinthians 15, Paul, probably in the mid 50s, says that there's a tradition that he's received and that he's passing along to his listeners. And that tradition obviously lays out the fact that Jesus died and rose again three days later. And then not only that, but that he appeared to the 12, to James, and to 500 people all at once. That particular block of material in 1 Corinthians 15, scholars have shown, is much earlier than Paul, is standardized tradition that he inherited, um, and probably goes back well into the 40s, if not before. And so you're looking at one of the earliest strata there of early Christian teaching. Um, and so Christians had that belief for an early time. And, they, and, and there's really three things I think confirm that belief. And we won't be able to say all that we want to say in a short podcast like this about each of them. Uh, but one, of course, is that if Jesus rose from the dead, there would have been an empty tomb. Um, there has to be some recognition that that's a key reason people thought he was alive, is that he wasn't there. <laughs> you, right. if, if Jesus was still there and you could go to the tomb and look at it, um, then there's no reason to think the resurrection would have really gotten off the ground. So one piece of evidence is that, of course, there's no body. Um, mm. A second piece of evidence is the eyewitness accounts themselves, which include uh, many people who not only claim to see Jesus rise from the dead or, or, or to be alive after he rose from the dead, uh, but, that, but that had a relationship with him, talked to him, listened to him, et cetera. And then the third area of evidence, I think, is the, is the existence of the early Christian movement. And I want to pause on this last one because it's often overlooked. People don't realize that there was many earlier would-be messiahs besides Jesus. Mm. And each of those messianic movements all ended for the exact same reason, is that the Roman government got the would-be messiah, killed the would-be messiah, and the movement ended. Mm. Well, interestingly, with Christianity, the the same thing happened. The would-be messiah was arrested and killed by the Romans, but the movement didn't end. The movement actually continued 
that requires an historical explanation because that's a fact. It's a fact that Jesus was killed. It's a fact that the movement didn't end. It's a fact that they claimed he rose from the dead. That has to be explained. And I think this is why why scholars have worked so hard to explain it. And I just don't find their their explanations more credible than the resurrection itself. Wow. Okay. Can we pause on that messianic um, idea that you've just brought up for a second? Were these messianic figures, did they come from Judaism or or was it sort of just the, the spirit of the age that, that was sort of a popular way? I mean, I know we do have messiah messianic figures now as well, but what do you account for that? No, these were Jewish would-be messianic figures. Okay. Um, not, 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 we use the term messianic now in our modern day to refer to anybody who's a leader or sort of a, a promised one. But in the ancient world, the Messiah was a distinctively Jewish idea. Um, and there were others that had had either claimed or were there was claims made on behalf of certain uh, characters, Judas Maccabees being one of the most classic examples here um, prior to Jesus. And for these instances, it was very when they, when the person was arrested and killed by the Romans, you know, the, the, the Messianic movement didn't just say, oh, well, that's fine. We'll just press on without him. Mm-hmm. <laughs> no, that's not what they said. As soon as the Messiah was killed, that was it. It was over. Yeah. They were they were then on to the next potential Messiah. And people don't realize that when Jesus was killed, those wheels were put in motion again. The disciples right. hiding in the upper room, their skepticism, their doubt, their fear was all because they knew what it meant for Jesus to die. For Jesus to die, at least at that point, they thought meant that's it. It's over. He's not the Messiah. And so mm-hmm. you've got to have something really big to overturn that. And, and it's not enough to overturn that just by saying someone made up the resurrection story. Um, right. or that someone thought, uh, you know, they saw an hallucination. You've got to right. come up with something more substantive. And that's where I think the Christian evidence proves to be pretty compelling. Yeah. So tell us what did happen to the early believers. They saw Jesus after he rose from the dead, as we see in first Corinthians 15. And then what, then what happened to them? What was, what was happening on the ground? Yeah. Well, the, we don't give a lot of attention between Friday and Sunday for these, mm-hmm. for the 12. And I, I think we, we never pause to appreciate the uh, despondency, the, the defeat, the, the sorrow they would have felt. Um, and it wasn't just sorrow over a lost friend, which it certainly would have been that, but it was sorrow over, over the dreams they had about the kingdom of God coming and being crushed and Jesus, not the Messiah. They weren't in a posture where they were trying to salvage the mission. They weren't in a posture where they're trying to um, come up with some fake resurrection. They're in a posture of survival. Um, they're, they're trying to hide so they're not next. Um, so what, what I want to point out to people is that people get this impression that the early Christian movement was trying was like was prone to think they saw Jesus. Right. Like any any whisper any 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 figure behind a rock or tree they think oh there's jesus alive again as if they're just hanging on the edge of of seeing things but the opposite proves the, to be the case at every turn they there's people who see jesus and, and, and they don't even recognize him the, you got the the disciples on the road to emmaus they're like jesus is walk with them they don't even recognize him mary magdalene sees him in the garden doesn't recognize him the idea that the entire christian movement was on the edge of just making up resurrection appearances is completely foreign to what we are faced with evidential on an evidentialist level. We're, we're, we're seeing that people were had no proclivity of all to think that, that Jesus was alive. And so now the question becomes, well, what can overturn that? You know, the, the, you see the women knock on the door saying, we've seen him alive, and the disciples don't believe it. So again, showing that they're not prone to think he's alive. And then Peter and John run to the tomb, and then even then they're not sure he's alive. So what what led them to believe he's alive? The resurrection appearances themselves. 
The only explanation that I can come up with as an historian that, that explains all the evidence is if Jesus actually appeared to the 12 in a way that they could see, touch, and feel. And that's what shifted the, the movement and turned it around 180 degrees. That is really, really helpful to pause there and talk about this as you have, because I do think that there's sort of, especially, um, you know, in our modern culture, we tend to think, well, religious people are so easily influenced, you know, they, they're, they're primed, they're primed to believe these things. And so these things happen to them, you know, they believe these things because they're primed for it. But as you say, they were not primed for it. In fact, we see evidence to the contrary that they, they could hardly believe what they saw at first. And then they did believe as, as Jesus proved to them who he was. So Jesus, then what happened after the resurrection? Take, talk to us after Sunday um, and then what it was like for the early church moving forward from there. Well, obviously, once Jesus appeared, there, there was a, a, a time where it took some effort <laughs> to come around. I mean, it even says, and it wasn't just Thomas that doubted. We have other gospel accounts that says that some believed and some doubted even after the appearances. Think, of, think about that for a moment. Someone, someone is, you're, you're so convinced that someone's dead that when they come back from the dead, you still aren't sure what yeah. you believe. Um, but eventually, of course, we know the disciples came to embrace the conviction that Jesus of Nazareth was alive and he was alive physically. He wasn't just alive in heaven or something. He, that wouldn't have been that revolutionary of an idea um, right. that he was alive in a way that they could touch him and talk to him. Now, of course, the gospel accounts tell us that that he was around for another 40 days, teaching, being with the disciples, and then ascended uh, into glory. We, we hear about his ascension from the book of Acts as well. And then the early Christian movement at that point was tasked with telling that story. And this is interesting in its own right. If we take the book of Acts at face value, and there's a whole other discussion there we could have, we know that the message of the resurrection was not something that made the disciples popular. It wasn't, it wasn't going to make them uh, you know, more well-liked. And so the idea that they would have faked it or made it up or were lying about it just simply doesn't bear out with common sense. I mean, they were going to go out and put their lives on the line, and you wouldn't do that for something that you knew was a lie. It's possible to die for something that's a, that's a lie. That happens, I think, quite a bit in the world. But sure. it's not very likely that you would die for something that you knew was a lie. Hmm. Right. Great point. Um, so for the listener who maybe doesn't know, could you tell us how the early Christians suffered, how the disciples fared in their their faith that Jesus really did live and die and rise again? Well, it seems quite quick that the disciples re, you know, received serious opposition. We have numerous mm-hmm. passages in the early chapters of Acts where Peter's imprisoned and almost executed. Paul's in prison numerous times. They're attacked and beaten. Um, the book of Acts ends, of course, with Paul in prison on the way to Rome. Um, we know from historical accounts, from what we can tell, and again, we don't have as much data on this as we would like about other stories of martyrdom. Um, the brother of Jesus, James, and his martyrdom. Uh, we have uh, accounts of early Christian martyrdoms in the second century. Now, keep in mind that that, that persecution at this point was not empire-wide. It was in little pockets. Um, it was more sporadic and isolated based on the the region of the Roman Empire that you're in. And of course, the most famous example of this type of persecution comes from uh, Emperor Nero himself in the 60s in Rome, where he would um, he blamed the fires of Rome on the Christians um, and, and executed many of them. And then, the, then at least church tradition says that he was responsible for the death of the Apostle Peter himself. So you have a very hostile environment that, that Christians are entering into. Um, and at the center of the Christian claim, of course, is the resurrection. 
And so you have to have some explanation historically for that motive. What would yeah. what would what would cause someone to be convinced that that's uh, a posture worth taking? Well, they're obviously convinced that Jesus wasn't wasn't dead. He's alive and, and he's the Messiah and he reigns. And that was the the impetus for that, that behavior. Um, and, and so, again, for people who have to deal with the evidence, the, the historical explanation isn't just can I explain Jesus rising or not rising, but you have to explain how Christians came to believe it and how they came to be willing to die for it. Yeah, that is so good. Um, in addition to obviously believing what they saw or believing what they told or the, the, the historical tradition that was passed on to them, what were the benefits to those early believers? How was life in Christ or life as part of the church different for those first believers than it was for them on the outside of the church? Yeah, so there, there's a paradox to the Christian life. Um, I think anybody who's a, who's a Christian understands this, um, which is you, you have a paradox of, of, of sort of very difficult things and very wonderful things at the same time. Mm-hmm. And I think the, the early Christians would have experienced this. They, in the midst of all that persecution and opposition, we, we see from the book of Acts and other historical reports that the Christians enjoyed uh, really great uh, fellowship with other believers, a bond of, of love and the community of, of, of Christians. Um, obviously, we would argue as Christians that there is the spiritual fellowship with Christ himself by the Spirit in your hearts as you serve him and live for him, which brings joy and peace. And so there is a lot of benefit to following Jesus that clearly in the minds of the early Christians outweighed the dangers and the persecutions. And the most important benefit in their mind is that they were serving the king of the universe. And even if they were killed, they believed that they would live uh, forever with their own future resurrected body. And this is really Mm -hmm. the ultimate hope of Easter, which is that Jesus rose from the dead with a resurrected body as sort of a first fruits of our own future resurrection. So as Christians follow Jesus, their hope was that someday they would be like him. And by like him, what that meant is that they would have a resurrected body too and would live with him mm. forever. And that's 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 the motivation for Christians. Yes, amen. Um, well, let's turn the corner just a little bit here. Let's talk a little bit about the New Testament. I mean, you are one of the leading scholars today on the New Testament, on the origins of the New Testament. And a lot of what we're talking about is found in the New Testament. So perhaps you're chatting with your airplane seat partner and they've been convinced that, okay, there's this clear historical movement and we have to explain why this movement originated and why these people believed in the risen Jesus and chose to follow him. But suppose they are still sort of skeptical about our scriptures. You know, are these really believable documents? Are these really grounded in history? And I know that we could talk for years on this topic, (laughs) but what are some of the talking points that you like to share with the skeptic when it comes to the historical reliability of the New Testament. Yeah, you're right. There's so much to say there. And, and you, you've had my class, so you know, you know there's a lot more to say there. Um, I mean, the first thing I would say to the person on the airplane is, I'd go back to the 1 Corinthians 15 yeah. uh, scenario. Here's some things that, that, that may surprise the person. Even secular scholars agree that Paul wrote 1 Corinthians 15. And even secular scholars agree that he's teaching that Jesus rose from the dead. And even secular scholars agree that he inherited earlier tradition that, that predates him by quite a margin. So if they want to know whether the, 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 the historical testimony about the resurrection be, can be trusted, we have something that goes back almost to the 40s of the first century. And Jesus would have lived probably somewhere in the 30s. Um, and on a historical level, that's just an unbelievably early testimony that apparently is well known and widespread. 
And then it's backed up by the testimony of the Gospels. And now the person might say, well, why can't I trust the Gospels? Well, there's lots of reasons we could get into. I'll say very quickly that they're the earliest records we have in our possession of Jesus. They're also the only records we have of Jesus dated to the first century. And then the only records of Jesus we have that date presumably and probabilistically back to his earliest followers uh, who would have been there as eyewitnesses to these things. Now, if the person still wants to be skeptical after all that, then I would say, well, then you must be skeptical of all of history. Because if you believe anything in history, you believe it because someone wrote it down and someone saw it. And I would just challenge them to ask whether they're really being fair with the Gospels if they're going to have that same level of skepticism to every single historical document they seem to trust. Because that's how you know things. You know things because someone was there who saw it happen and they wrote it down. And we have some of the best uh, documents uh, in the Gospels that do that. Yes, absolutely. That was one of the things I learned early in my um, faith that was really convincing to me um, and something that really encouraged me in your class as well is just looking at the mountains of evidence. And that was just in you know the introductory Gospels class. So I know that there's so much more that could be said here, but that is super encouraging to me. Um, let me ask you a bit of a philosophical question, because I know, you know, as you say, that's kind of where a lot of our friends and family and non-believing um, community are coming from. What would you say, Dr. Kruger, to somebody who says, what kind of father would kill his only son? Um, that is something that I kind of hear surfacing a little bit more. So sort of objections to the character of God and the validity of, you know, sacrificing your son. Could you speak to that briefly, how we might orient the way we think about that? Yeah, this is a common objection today. It's not really that new, even though we hear about it more now. Um, it's sort of this idea that God is sort of a, a cosmic child abuser um, that would, you know, mistreat his own son in some fashion. I think I think that just reveals a very limited understanding of the nature of atonement in the, in the ancient world and what it what it did and why it was needed. Um, I think it fails to understand that the predicament we're in, Jesus, or, or rather God, is a holy God who demands uh, a perfect holiness from his people. And when they violate God's law, he takes that very seriously. And there's judgment that has to be executed on uh, violators of the law. So how is God going to have a loving relationship with the rebellious people who broke his law? Well, someone has to pay the price. Um, and someone has to, to bear the burden of that, of that penalty for the broken law. The fact that God allowed his son to bear that burden and to bear that penalty is not a sign that God is in some sense immoral, but rather it's a sign of how incredibly gracious, compassionate, uh, and uh, loving God is that he would be willing to, to give up his own son for sinful, rebellious people. So when you look at it from that perspective, it's actually the opposite story. And this is what Christians have embraced for generations, which is that the story of, of, of the sacrifice of Jesus is not a story of how bad and evil God is. Um, but rather how incredibly gracious he is to be to allow his son to suffer this penalty um, in place of believers, the other th or uh, of of, re of, rebel of rebels. The other thing I would say, too, that people need to remember is that Jesus went to the cross willingly. You know, this idea that 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 Jesus was sort of thrown under the proverbial bus by his father kicking and screaming as he went. It misses the point is that Jesus willingly sacrificed himself uh, for his people. So it was not forced upon him. He was not abused and mistreated by the Father, but willingly went to the cross for the joy set before him. And I think when you realize that, that changes his perspective too. Yes, absolutely. 
Thank you for that. Okay, final question to close us out, Dr. Kruger. A lot of my listeners, I think, are probably going to feel really busy this weekend. A lot of them have little ones. They're going to be hiding Easter eggs and tying hair bows and getting people out the door. What would you leave us with? What is the hope of Easter? Where where can we just sort of uh, fix our minds this weekend as we go forward and from Sunday on? Pastorally, what would you leave us with? Yeah, I think I think a reminder of 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 the, the the sort of tangible realities of our joys in an Easter weekend are a good place to start with that. You know, someone thinks about their family for a moment. You know, on Easter morning, you give them a hug and they, you put your little child on your lap. You tell them that you love them. You you live together. You eat together. You dwell together. Okay, that's that's some of the, the even in a fallen world that brings us real richness and joy. What I think Easter reminds us of, and that I would encourage people to dwell on this weekend, is that that type of experience happens because you dwell with someone. You mm-hmm. physically can be with them together in one place. The hope of Easter is not a disembodied spiritual future on a cloud in heaven. The hope of Easter is that someday we'll get a new body and we'll actually get a new heavens and new earth where we can live in that body and we can live in it forever without the brokenness of this world. That is an incredible uh, thing to hope in. And someday then you will see Jesus face to face physically where you can touch him and be held by him and hug him. And for other believers that will see in the new heavens and new earth, we will be together with them again physically because we'll have resurrected bodies where we can dwell forever. So the joy, even the limited joy we feel now when we're with another person, you will be with people forever like that. And most importantly, with Christ forever like that, if the resurrection is true. And of course, we believe that it is. So Easter is about uh, anticipation. It's about, of course, looking back to what Jesus has done. He rose from the dead. But what that means for our future, that someday we get to have a new body and be just like him. Wow. Yes. And amen. He is risen. He is risen indeed. Um, Dr. Kruger, thank you so much for helping us to fix our hearts, minds, and souls on our risen Savior. I'm really grateful for you joining us today. Good to be with you. Thanks, everybody, for tuning in to All Things, and we pray that you have a really sweet Easter weekend. Thanks so much for taking time to listen to All Things with me, Jen Oshman, where we look at current events and cultural trends through a Christian lens. All things were created through Jesus and for Jesus, so we're seeking to apply his word to what's happening here and now.